Abba Yahweh, bless the reading of the scriptures to whomever will hear and listen. Father God, thank you for allowing me to be your conduit. Abba Yahweh, Aman, Yeshua, Aman, Baraklutos, Aman. So, <clears throat> I shared some things with you that are um, very important for the knowledge of Jesus and some question, there are those that question, well, is Jesus Old Testament, New Testament, and there are many um, label heads and self-proclaimed that, oh, the gospel of Jesus is in the New Testament, and it's just in the New Testament, and the Old Testament is all about the old ways and the laws. However, um, if you read the scripture, and you remember the rule of faith, regula fidele, the rule of faith, we are to read from the front to the back and the back to the front. And in doing so, you will find that the gospel is the entire book. The good news, because that is where the word gospel comes from. It is a Roman Latin phrase that is used, and it just simply means good news. So how be it that you are going to declare the New Testament as the good news and what is the rest. So this is what I've shared with you before is that mammon and those that vaunt themselves in authority because they have a theological degree and they have this knowledge and that knowledge and that validation is given to them by some Joe Schmo that sits up in a really nice office at the school and was elected into that position or given that position, however they do it. And so he goes and he runs and makes sure that the counselors are doing and conforming to the theological curriculum. And then, um, what does he get for all that that he does? He gets to sign a document that says, yeah, now you have earned your doctorate, you've earned your master's or whatsoever, blah, blah, blah. Well, here's the thing. Now they think that they have the capability and their authority is much greater than anyone else. So essentially what happened, and I'm not saying that all of them are like that. There are not all of them like that. It's like my pastor and his wife both carry doctorates, but they don't, they're not embracing that and they're not, uh, you know, they did a lot of studies for it, but they don't brag about it. There are those individuals that do introduce them when they, he gets ready to come and speak for uh, the sermon on Sunday, and they mention Dr. Jamie Miller, and that's fine. But he doesn't do that, okay? He doesn't vaunt himself. So what these chancellors, or whatever they call them as head of universities, um, they're practicing an extreme case of Phariseeism. But we're going to leave that. We're going to get back to this thing here. Um, they have decided that the New Testament... Why they called it, I guess I can get why they called it a New Testament, a testament of Jesus Christ, okay? Testament or testimony is a written documentation of those things, and that the Old Testament was Old Testimony or documentation of things. But the rule of faith tells us that we read through both front to back and back to front, and that the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin, they were not practicing the rule of faith. 
you had the Sadducees, which decided that the first five books, the first five scrolls of Torah, which were, uh, and they call them the laws of Moses, except the problem being that they weren't Moses's law. They were the laws of God, the heavenly father who established and gave the word to Moses to share with Israel. But the Sanhedrin decided that they were Moses's law. The first five books are Moses's law and his governing, and that it all must be according to the law of Moses. Hmm. Well, these supposed learned scholars didn't even figure that out where it says that God gave Moses the law, and he wrote it with his finger in stone. And then you have the Pharisees who studied the the words of the prophets and and also back before. But the funny thing of it is, and I, I find it pretty humorous, sad and humorous at the same time, is that they had to have a number of seats of judges that had to keep the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees from going at odds with each other because they were constantly arguing and bickering and that they had to make judgment that if one group said something, it would be accepted by everybody, and this group of judges had to decide that. That's kind of pathetic. And you have religious organizations that do that very thing now. Pretty sad. But let's get back into specifics. The gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, is he old or New Testament? Well, he's in all of it. And it began, and I shared with you that it began back in Genesis 3.15 in the declaration when God spoke to the serpent for what he had done and he told him, that enmity would be between the seed of woman and his seed. And it was very specific. It wasn't, um, it was God telling about Jesus, indeed a prediction of futuristic events, but it was very specific. It wasn't just, a generality, and some people read over this as a generality that, oh, women are going to have problems with snakes and kids could be hurt if they don't pay attention. But we also know, and it was told that he would be born to a woman and born under the law. And he came to redeem those of us born under the law, that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. And here's something that label heads and self-proclaimed Christians get wrong quite often, actually, is that they think that Jesus just kind of flitted around six, eight inches above the ground, and he didn't ever walk at his feet, or, and he just hovered everywhere he went somehow and that he was protected all the time by the angels and so forth and so on and he never had to do this or that and he took off and well you know let's get into the scripture and let's decide what's factual 
So the scriptures say that many times that Jesus went off by himself to pray and he took time away from the disciples. And why did he do that? Not only to pray, did he seclude himself in the shadows of the trees and the and the roses up in uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, or did he take off and he just hang out in some cave somewhere? And all he did was three or four days. All he did was pray. No, he did not do that. God, Jesus was a people person, compassionate, kind, and he liked people. He had to get away from the disciples because they were bickering back and forth constantly about who was the better of the group, who knew more, and 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 it was. It tried Jesus. <laughs> I'm certain it tried it. It's like driving in a in a car across country with a carload of kids that won't stop yammering about who's older, who's better, and who's smarter, and are we there yet, are we there yet? If you heard that constantly from West Coast to East Coast, chances are that you wouldn't have made it to the East Coast. Jesus took his time away. He met other people. He talked with them, may have even healed some or done some things for them. The Bible is not specific about that. But interpolate, interpolate to the positive. That's the way Jesus is. Kind, compassionate, caring, and he was liking being around people. Jesus didn't just float around everywhere he went. Angels, he got hungry. He was tempted. He got thirsty. And he was physically accosted and beat up. The Romans beat him nearly to death. They stabbed him so that his bodily fluids came out. Jesus was a man. He had heavenly attributes, but he didn't profess them and he didn't demonstrate all the time. Even at the wedding when he turned the water to the wine, he asked his mother, why are you telling me this? My hour has not come. It's not time for me to do anything yet. And she just gave him that mom look and he said... Emma, okay. And he turned the water into wine. His compassion for his earthly mother was overwhelming for him. And he did this for her. That was his first miracle. But he told her that it wasn't time yet. Why are you coming to me with this? Okay. So let's go back and we're going to go back as in the rule of faith to the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus is a description of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. And it talks about the death angel coming. Now you'll find when you read the scripture that it's not specifically speaking of Jesus and mention his name, but it talks about the angel of death coming in Egypt and taking the firstborn of everything in that land that's in an unmarked house. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, who came and saved us from death. And he saved us from death and that we can be in the kingdom of heaven. And in John one twenty nine, John the baptizer declared it that when he saw, when they were at the Jordan, and he looked up and he saw Jesus, and he declared, Behold the Lamb of God. 
So, Jesus being the sacrificial lamb, bathing us in his blood, covering us in his blood, God sees that we are his, adopted, and we believe. And um, we're not saved from physicality of death. That's not what that's about. That doesn't mean that we just walk off out into a fog and we turn into angelic beings. It's not what that means. What it means when they talk about um, we can now walk through the valley of the shadow of death because we are redeemed and we are adopted sons and daughters of Abba Yahweh, Lord God Almighty, Hashim, creator of all things, ancient of days, whatever you want, however you go, that describe the character of God. We must remember and describe the character of Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, kind, compassionate. But he cleansed us in that so that God sees that and we shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And remember, death and perishing is not, no matter what anybody will try to tell you, they are not synonymous. When you speak of death, you're talking about the physicality, the, this realm that we're in, walking around in now. When you die, you leave this plane of existence. Perishing is to leave and not be allowed into the kingdom of heaven as adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And that was the reason that he came, so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. And as it tells us in our adoption letter in the book of Romans, that we are adopted as heirs and joint heirs of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven. And we can also find, it doesn't talk specifically about Jesus in Numbers 21. And this, some people, and there are some labelheads and self-proclaimed Christians that declare paganism and that Israel were pagan and that they were doing this. It's not like the golden calf and all that that were on the mount. When, when Moses spent so much time gone, they didn't know what to do, so they convinced Aaron to make a golden calf. And they were worshiping the calf, as a calf and it was a false god that they had encountered. Totally different. In Numbers, they're talking about the bronze serpent. Because Israel was nagging Moses about the manna from heaven, the pheasants and all this, and they couldn't find water, and they had to go here and there, yada, 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 yada. Got tired. God was really starting to lose his patience with them. And so an area in the desert, the wilderness, they were wandering around, and they encountered the fiery serpents. And many got bitten, and they were dying because there was no remedy, and they, I don't know if they knew about tourniquets back then, it doesn't stay specifically, but Moses was told that you cast this bronze serpent, and then you lift it up, and when they look on the serpent, that I will save them. And it wasn't worshiping the snake, it was giving them something to focus on, and kind of shocking them into a reality and getting them off of their wanking and whining and crying about heavenly bread and the birds that came at the word of God to feed them and take care of them, but they still wanted to whine and cry and wank about it. And then the water from the stone that was with them. And they complained about that. I guess the, the water didn't taste sweet enough to them or something. I don't know. 
But if you looked on the serpent and you had faith in God and you believed, then you would be saved and you wouldn't die from the poison of the serpent. I'm going to get farther into that analogy later on. That's Numbers 21. And then you're going to look later. And if we read from Jesus' own words from John 3, 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hear me. He didn't say, I wouldn't die, speaking about me. He said, I wouldn't perish. Remember, there is a singular paramount difference between the two. Dying is this physical realm. I know I'm going to die. I'm going to get old and I'm going to go. But God has seen fit for his purpose to allow me to age. And people find it difficult to believe that I have four grand. And there's, there's people that have many more. So I'm not... That's nothing. That's just a, a point of reference. I have four grandchildren. They can't believe it. And they can't believe it when they find out my age. God has truly blessed me. But I know that there's going to be a time where I will die. And I am going to be in heaven. But he has allowed that I not perish. There is a significant difference. And when Jesus was speaking in John three fourteen and 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we also have to look at some things and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go back into uh, Old Testament. Remember the rule of faith. So we're going to go back in here because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the rule of faith. Where is Jesus just Old Testament or is the gospel somewhere else? Can we have this and that? But here's the thing that we have to understand. If we go back to Psalm, going to go back to the book of Psalms, the poems and songs of David. And we find in Psalms, in the Psalm, 22nd Psalm that David is speaking very specifically and you have to remember that this is some uh, 700 years before the birth of Jesus and it's very specific and he didn't say well there's going to be a come a time and the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to say this and say that and it's going to be happening this and that. But if you read Psalm 22, this is the day of crucifixion of Jesus Christ, anointed of God, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And further David speaks, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season am not silent. 
David is crying out to God and talking to God. And he's making some declaration. And he's crying further. And he talks more about the crucifixion. And he's talking about the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. Um, Jesus betrayed, surrounded, and crucified. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And we're reading further from verse 11. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Basham, and have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of, the, of my bowels. Now, if you remember that in the crucifixion that Jesus' bodily fluids were just pointed, they struck him, they poked him with a spear. And remember when that uh, soldier pushed the spear into his side and pierced the water sack around his heart and it poured out and he ruptured his heart and the fluid poured out. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. He's thirsty. Jesus cried out for water and they gave him gall. They gave him spoiled wine that had turned to vinegar and they gave him that to drink. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of which of wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garment among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. This was 700 years before Jesus Christ was even born. Here's the other thing too. Crucifixion was not heard of and it was not known of and not until the Roman Empire came and they perfected this thing in this way of putting people to death. And this time that David was talking, crucifixion wasn't even known or heard of. This is some thousand years. And then you have other prophets that speak to this, but they're not speaking as if they're predicting the time. They're speaking as if they had gone. And then we're going to go over to Isaiah. Isaiah 53. And Isaiah is speaking as if he had been standing at the foot of the cross or in close proximity and was witnessing these things to happen. This isn't a prediction, and he's not saying, and there shall come a time when he who is walking blah, 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 didn't say that. This is very specific. Speaking of, as if it had happened. As if he had witnessed it. And this is 700 years before the coming of Christ. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, 
and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form, no comeliness. He's just kind of a plain guy. He didn't. He wasn't standing out. There wasn't anything stand out about Jesus. He he was like us and like everyone. And and some might even say that uh, oh, he looked like everybody else. Don't get your knickers in a twist over that statement because it's got nothing to do with everybody looking the same. And people want to divide. Don't don't go there. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did not esteem him, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. Notice that all these words are in past tense. And this is 700 years before the coming of Jesus, before he was even born. Isaiah is speaking as if it had already happened, as if he was standing there in the future, seeing it take place, and now he's going back and writing about it in his time. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. All Isaiah spoke is past tense, 700 years before the birth of Christ and before the crucifixion. And again, I tell you, the crucifixion wasn't even heard of back then, wasn't even known of. David talking about the, and if you remember the description of the crucifixion, pretty powerful. That he was beaten so severely. Bones were broken and cracked. He couldn't even carry the cross. He had to have, they had to pull somebody out of the crowd to come in and help him carry the cross to Golgotha where he was going to be crucified. Whew, wow. Isaiah, what a powerful vision to see into the future that God allowed him to see what had not taken place, and yet he wrote as if he had been there. These testaments are not just prophetic word of what was coming, because Isaiah didn't say, hear me nation, the Lord tells me that this is going to happen to one who is going to comfort. He didn't talk like that. He spoke as if he had already seen it. And don't forget that I shared with you that uh, Jesus Christ 
was seen by Nebuchadnezzar when Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra were thrown into the furnace. Hey, my counselors, didn't I tell you to put three guys into that furnace? Didn't I tell you that those three Hebrews that just really gave me, got me angry were to be thrown in there? Then can you tell me why there's a fourth and they're walking around freely? He didn't, he knew. He, it was a rhetorical question that he threw out. Even if you read in the scripture, it was a rhetorical question. He already knew that three had been put in the, in the furnace. He didn't need them to tell him, but he was trying to draw their attention to the fact that there was some. And what he did, he say about that? And he is like unto the Son of God. Where did Nebuchadnezzar meet Jesus? Daniel didn't give him scripture about Jesus being born and coming, but yet the majesty, the authority that was coming with Jesus came to him and he recognized him in the furnace. Joshua recognized him on the path to the valley of Jericho. The demons recognized him in the New Testament when he encountered demoniacs. They recognized his authority didn't have to recognize Jesus by his facial features in the photograph on the lineup. None of that was present. They recognized him by his authority. They knew his speech. And you remember when the Sanhedrin took him and they were trying to do all these things and that the people, their mouths were shut. Why? Because he spoke with such authority. This is just... um, kind of a bit of trivial knowledge that some are, may or may not find interesting, but that you have sciences. Sciences, they give them thing they call them disciplines. Interesting. But you have to study and you have to get these things done and then you have a specific way of doing something. And I've heard scientists talking about various things that are done. What's your discipline? Oh, I use the Newton law or I use Einstein regulatum and so forth and so on. So that's a discipline. But anyway, you have, uh, <laughs> you have individuals that want to talk about science and proof and all these things. Well, you have a group of mathematicians and their science that they study and their discipline is that of percentages. And this is, this is real. And they did a study for a fulfillment. Now, they, they took a limited number because I'm quite certain that it would have really bound things up. And that their discipline was that of percentages. And they did a calculation just between 48. Now, in the Old Testament, I believe I shared with you before that they there have been found at least 300 or more predictions of the coming of Jesus. And speaking of the crucifixion and um, so forth. And they did a study of percentages just on those 48. 
that those 48, and then they took the fulfillment of those 48 predictions that happened as it was predicted 500, 700, and 1,000 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, before his birth. And that study gave them an astronomical number in favor of, of that being the miraculous hand of God. The number was more than the known atoms that we can find on earth wandering around if we were to go around the earth and pick up the, the atoms and put them in containers and bag them up, you wouldn't even be able to house them. The number was staggering. I can't, I wouldn't even know how to begin to, you know, it's more than a quazillion, a quintillion. I wouldn't even know how to name that number. But they found scientific evidence to prove and they believed that it had to be miraculous intervention that the numbers are too high and too powerful. And now these are scientists. Some I'm, I'm certain might believe in God and Jesus is the only begotten son of God. But you're talking about a whole group of scientists that come together that study the law of percentages and the discipline of percentages. And they concluded and is proof to them of the miraculous intervention of Lord God Almighty. And there are other sciences and other disciplines that are being used that are finding this to be so. And then we have to understand and remember the fulfillment. Jesus is our Messiah our Savior, our Redeemer, and he is the Lamb of God. And John the Baptizer described him. Behold the Lamb of God, whose shoes I am not worthy to latch. And then I'm going to throw in this, as we find in the book of Luke. remember that he's not just in the New Testament. That some of his disciples and two of the disciples were walking down on the on the day that that Jesus rose. And this was it was told to us and he, he wandered around and showed himself. Peter ran to the tomb and these two guys were going and they were on the road to Emmaus. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Let me, um, I'm going to try to find out something here right quick so I can share with you because I, I, I'm interested in, out of curiosity, a furlong. Okay. So, we have three score furlongs from Jerusalem to, where are they going? Emmaus was this village, and it was three score furlongs from um, Jerusalem. 
And so we're talking about 60, 60 furlongs. Okay, so it's a little bit of a distance for them to be hiking. And um, I'm uh, still doing a little calculation here. Okay, so uh, three score furlong here, and I might not be correct, but I'm going to check in that. Um, so in walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem with these two gentlemen who had walked away because Jesus had been crucified, but he, he rose from the dead, so they didn't know. So Emmaus is approximately 24 miles down, and they were talking together. And this can be found in Luke 24. And they're walking along and they're talking together and all the things which had taken place. And, you know, man, it's too bad. I really thought that, that he was the one and he was going to this and he was going to that. And then they crucified him. And what are we going to do now? And they were back and forth together. So Jesus came up to them. Now, remember, he'd, he'd been risen. He wasn't in the tomb anymore. And he came near to them and he was walking with them. But they weren't seeing Jesus and they weren't remembering him. Uh, Jesus had a specific reason for doing this. And they were talking and, and uh, one of them, whose name was Cleopas and answering, and Jesus asked him, he said, what are you talking about? He says, "What are you? What are you talking about here? I'm I'm not certain here what you're talking about." And the one told him, "He said, haven't you heard?" He said, "What are you? What are you new around here or something? What are you new guy in town? You're new guy in Jerusalem. You haven't heard anything that happened." He said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers, they delivered him to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we trusted. We trusted he should have redeemed Israel. And he'd be beside all of us this day. And he'd be with us. And as it was three days ago. And they took him and they just, they crucified him. You hadn't heard about any of that? Now, the thing concerning these, remember that there were it doesn't say that these two were there, but it says that, that um, when Jesus was talking concerning his crucifixion and came up, and even after the crucifixion, and he rose, similar to these two, and he was up on the mountain and told him that he had to go and, and go to prepare a place. The scripture itself says that, that some walked away. They just walked, They didn't want to hear it because Jesus wasn't going to stay there, so they gave up. As long as he was there, everything was okie-dokie. But when he left, they walked away. So here are these two again. We're going to talk about Cleopas, and we're going back to uh, we're going back to their walk. 
And he said, uh, there were some women that were in our company that we hung out with Jesus and, and they, they went to the tomb and, and he wasn't there. And they came and they told us and they also told us that they saw angels and told him that he was alive. But there were some of us that ran up and they found that they were telling the truth. But they didn't see him. And then he said unto them, all fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ have suffered these things to enter into his glory? Jesus is now talking about them going back to the Old Testament and the prophets and beginning of Moses at the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scripture to the things concerning himself. And when they drew to the village, now see, he's teaching them from the old ways. He's teaching them from the old words. And they didn't quite get it. And when they came close to the village and they were going to get he made as if he was going to continue to walk. And they asked him to come and join. I said, come on, stay with us. It's getting late. Come and stay with us and have dinner. And the day's almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. And as they sat down to eat with them, he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke the bread and shared with them and their eyes were opened. And then they knew him. And then he was gone. And they said to each other, did we not feel it in our hearts? Didn't we feel that it was burning within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened us to the scriptures? And he spoke to them talking from the Old Testament. This is what I just said. Then he said unto them, this is in verse 25. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. The scriptures of the prophecies were talking about these things. And then you have the Pharisees. They didn't even get it. We know about them. I badmouth them all the time. <laughs> Can't help it. It's factual. They didn't get it. They read the scripture and they're supposed to be these learned individuals that know more than the Son of God and they know more than the Word of God and they know more than the Word himself because the Word was with, was God, with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh. What are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then we have... In Romans, the book of Romans, Paul's letter. I'm going to jump over here right quick. We're going to jump over Romans 15 and 4. For whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have Hope. What's Paul talking about there? Paul, to his letter to Romans, is talking about the Old Testament. He is trying to get them to know 
that these things that were going to happen with Jesus and to Jesus and did happen to Jesus and that it's for our knowledge and for our benefit, our uplifting and our edification. My brothers and sisters, Jesus is throughout the Bible. The Bible is the gospel of God, our Father, and Jesus, His only begotten Son, and it is throughout. It's not just the New Testament. Theologians and those folks that get up there and think themselves so high and mighty and practicing the fine art of Phariseeism, they determine that the New Testament is separate and it's about Jesus, and the Old Testament is about the prophets and and the old ways and so forth and so on. Yeah, you find that to be so. However... I find that God, the more I study it this way and the more I follow to that, is that God is a such a fine tailor and is stitching these things together is without seam, without pucker, without blemish. It's just, it's seamless. Go back to the Old Testament. It's all relative. You have a blessed day. You're in my prayers. Am I going out and my coming in?